biology. 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 Hello and welcome back to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. My name is Mr. Kalella and we are going to continue moving through the biology syllabus today. Before I get started, I just want to do a very quick shout out um, to all the people who are giving me support for the podcast. Um, when I first started, you know, this was um, for students and um, yeah, I've had a lot of teachers sort of send their support my way. So um, just a quick thank you to all those people who are supporting the podcast. If you want, you can check out the new HSC Biology Facebook page where I will be posting relevant content and things that I talk about from the podcast. The second thing I want to talk about today is the fact that I actually have a special guest coming on the podcast next week, uh, which is super exciting for me. Um, and that is the Community and Project Officer from the Garvin Institute, Lauren McKnight, um, who's offered her time to come and speak about DNA sequencing and profiling. So, um, yeah, look forward to that one next week. All right, uh, well, let's get into today's episode. All right, so this week on the podcast, we are going to continue through the dot point that says, model the formation of new combinations of genotypes produced during meiosis, including but not limited to, and we went through autosomal sex linkage codominance, incomplete dominance, and multiple alleles last week, and we looked a little bit at the way in which Punnett squares work and the difference between phenotypes, genotypes, and a whole bunch of other terms. Today, we're going to be looking at constructing and interpreting information and data from pedigrees and Punnett squares. So a Punnett square goes perfectly with the pedigree. And if you don't know what a pedigree is, you can think about it like a family tree. Um, so in a family tree, you usually start with two individuals at the top, um, a mother and a father, and they um, will quite often have offspring. And so we're going to talk about how genes and traits can be passed through generations and how we track those genes um, um, to give us you know, observable phenotypes and then we can use that information to actually figure out genotypes and the way in which things are inherited. So whether they're autosomal, sex linkage, codominance, you get the idea. We can uh, apply all of the previous things learnt on the previous episode to a pedigree to work out what type of inheritance pattern is taking place. So before we get started, let's run through the different ways in which a pedigree can be um, drawn and marked up. And the first is that, as I said before, it usually starts with a mother and a father. Um, and so for any male individual in a pedigree in this family tree, they are going to get a square. So they get a, just a square shape and a female is going to be a circle. And so that's how we distinguish the difference between a male and female in a pedigree. Male square, female circle. Now, if they are... Uh, in a marriage, and this is how it used to be, a marriage line is drawn between them. So you draw a horizontal line between the male and the female, and that represents marriage. But probably more accurately for what we do now, it represents mating because that line, um, which goes horizontal, will have a line that drops down vertically from the middle of it, and that is the descent line. So that's where we have offspring. So we have a male and a female in the square and the circle, a horizontal line between them to represent the fact that they're mating, and a vertical line that is dropped down from the center to represent their descent line. 
Now that descent line, which drops down, will link with offspring. And their offspring can once again be male or female. If they're male, they get a square. And if they're female, they get a circle. Now it's important when you draw this that you draw the lines the correct way correct way because you don't want to represent the wrong idea so any horizontal line that joins two individuals is going to mean they're mating so when we do the drop down line for the uh, offspring or the children we need to make sure that you don't draw a horizontal line between them they should all be uh, a vertical line down to each child so it should split off and then go vertically uh, down to each child to represent that they're the offspring of the previous generation. And you can have anywhere from one to, you know, as many children as you can fit onto a pedigree. In uh, royal bloodlines, they quite often have, you know, um, five, ten, uh, fifteen individuals in, uh, in one family. So they can get quite large. Now, when we're tracking a family tree, usually we are looking at a particular trait or a disease. Um, and so we can talk about a number of different diseases. Um, as I said before, in royal bloodlines, we could talk about hemophilia. Um, but for the most part, they could be any condition at all, sickle cell anemia, um, anything that can be genetically inherited, we can track. Now, when you have a condition uh, in a family tree, we color that individual in. So if a male has the condition, you colored them in. If the female has the condition, you colored them in. And that represents that they have the trait that you're looking at. If they're not colored in, as in if it's just a box or a circle, it means that they do not have the trait you're looking at or the disease or the condition that we're looking at. A couple of other little bits and pieces that we can add to that include the fact that if you get the shape of a diamond, it means that there is no sex specified, so you don't know the gender. So this may be a potential offspring or one that you're trying to work out. Um, if you have a set of twins, instead of being a vertical line that drops down between them, the line splits, um, sort of diverges from the top point of the parents down to each individual um, and then finally if you have um, identical twins so the first one was for non-identical twins if you actually do have identical twins you draw the drop down uh, split line again so that diverging line and then confusingly you actually draw a line between them so this is where it does make it a little bit confusing but this example is very very rare in fact I've never seen a monozygotic or identical twins question in the HSC so far but you never know what they're going to throw at you but for the most part if you just remember the horizontal line is the marriage line and the vertical lines represent descent that's pretty much all you need to know now every now and then you'll see a pedigree that has half colored in squares or circles and that just usually means that they are a carrier I think that's a little confusing because it, it doesn't represent what they actually have their phenotype uh, but that can happen. So just be aware that every now and then you might see a box or a circle that is half colored in, and that represents a heterozygote. So if you remember from last week, a heterozygote is someone that has both alleles. So a you know if we're doing tall and short, a capital T and a lowercase t, that's what a heterozygote is. So that can be in some pedigrees. Now, last thing to remember is that when we're constructing pedigrees, the correct way to draw them is on the left-hand side of your page, you want each generation to be listed um, using a Roman numeral. So I for the first one, II for the second one, III for the third one, um, and you know you get the idea. So Roman numerals on the left going down, and then each individual will get a specific number. Um, so the number one, two, and they just go in order from left to right. 
So if generation one has, you know, the two parents, the male and the female, they will be known as generation I. And if you're looking at the male, that's I1. And if you're looking at the female, that's I2. Now, when you're drawing a pedigree um, in your classrooms, you should be using that nomenclature to, to ensure that um, there's no confusion between individuals. Um, so you might need a key, for example. Um, quite often in the HSC, they will give you that already. So in a, in a question where you're given a pedigree and you'll see those markings on the side and the individual numbers for the individuals in the pedigree. Um, so just something to keep in mind, Roman numerals and the Arabic numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 to represent each individual in the pedigree. All right, now we know the basic structure of a pedigree, we can look at the different ways in which things can be inherited. So last time on the podcast, we started off by looking at autosomal inheritance, and that is on the autosomes, the um, in humans, 22 main chromosomes or non-sex chromosomes um, that carry conditions. And these will always have, you know, two spots, mum and dad's spaces or gene loci or um, two of those alleles for each condition. And so last week I spoke about the fact that you had tall and short or big T and little t. And so when we do an autosomal pedigree, each individual will have that particular genotype. They're either going to be big T, big T, which we know is homozygous dominant, little t, little t, which we know is homozygous recessive, or big T and little t, which represents the heterozygotes. So let's now do a simple example to explain how that works. If we say that the gene for being tall is dominant and the gene for being short is recessive, we'll use the letters capital T and lowercase t once again. Now let's try and trace the inheritance of the tall gene, so just the capital T. So let's say the male is tall and he has a genotype that is capital T, capital T, which is homozygous dominant. And let's say the female is short and she has a recessive genotype, which is lowercase t and lowercase t, uh, homozygous recessive genotype, I should say. Now, when we cross those two individuals, if you remember from last week, all of the offspring should come out as heterozygotes, big T, little t. So now let's have a think about how that would look on a pedigree. If we're looking at the gene for being tall and where that's the one we're sort of interested in tracing, we're going to color that in on each individual that is tall. So the male in the first generation was two capital T's, so he's definitely colored in, but the female was two lowercase t's, so she's not colored in. Now we draw a line between them, the horizontal line, and then a drop-down line. And if we were to suggest they were going to have three children, we would look at each of those children and we could effectively say that they should all be colored in. Why? Because our Punnett square shows that they should all be heterozygotes. In other words, they should have a capital T and a lowercase t. Now because they have one capital T and we know that that T is dominant, we then color each individual in. And so then we have our first look at a pedigree. The male in the first generation is colored in, and the three children in the second generation are all colored in. This is an example of an autosomal dominant condition, but we're not using condition in this case, we're just using a trait to explain it. Now you can apply the same logic to a disease. Imagine the disease was the capital T, and that was what we were tracing, and each of their children would be getting that condition. This is something that genetic counselors need to take into account. So a genetic counselor will look at the genotypes of the parents and they will give the statistical likelihood of getting a certain condition. 
Now, humans are more complex than just two genes regulating a single factor, but diseases can come down to those two factors, um, which is something that, again, genetic counsellors can use to give advice on having um, offspring. Now, if we look at a different way to do that pedigree, if we say that the disease or the condition or the trait we're looking at is recessive, let's have a look at how things change. So if the um, if we use the previous example where we had the male and the female, the male two capital T's and female two lowercase t's, if we say it's a recessive condition, we would colour in the female in the first generation. They have that condition. They are short, so we coloured them in. If we do the line between the two individuals and then we do a drop-down line and assume, again, they have three children, the Punnett square suggests that they're all heterozygotes, which means that all of them are carrying a recessive allele, but none of them would be short and so none of them get coloured in. So in this case, a recessive allele does not mean you're going to get the condition, and so it can skip a generation, as we learnt last week. Now, this is exactly what they want you to do in a pedigree, to figure out what kind of inheritance pattern is taking place. And so in an autosomal example, it can be a dominant, autosomal dominant condition, or autosomal recessive condition. And each of those are inherited differently depending on the individuals. Now, there are a few things that you can use to help you figure out which way things are inherited. Um, if things are a dominant condition, they can only be passed down if someone in the previous generation has it. In other words, every level should be colored in if it's going down in a single grouping pattern from one individual in the same family to the next, to the next, to the next it has to go from someone to the next person. A dominant condition will always be expressed. So um, it's a good way to figure out um, if a condition is autosomal dominant by looking at whether or not one person is passing it to the next and to the next. There should always be someone with the condition. Um, it's only unknown factors or individuals that we don't know in a pedigree um, that might marry into a family that may confuse that. Another thing that we can look at is if two individuals don't have a condition, but one of their offspring do, it has to be recessive. Again, you can't pass a condition down if it's dominant unless someone has it. And so if two individuals do not have the condition and yet one of their offspring does, it's going to have to be a recessive condition. It was hidden in both of the individuals but then passed on to their offspring. The other thing that we can look at if it's a recessive condition, if any two individuals have the condition all of their offspring should then have it. So let's just quickly explain that one. If we use the short gene again and we say that the recessive allele, lowercase t, um, is the one that gives you the short gene, if the female has two lowercase t's and the male have two lowercase t's, the Punnett square will always come out as 100% two lowercase t's or homozygous recessive. So all offspring will have two lowercase t's, meaning that the generation from one to two should all be colored in. Now, if that doesn't happen, if you have two parents that are colored in and one of their offspring isn't colored in, well, then you know it's not autosomal recessive. Now, these examples only hold true when using autosomal dominant and autosomal recessive conditions. But quite often in the HSC, you'll be given X-linked conditions, which add another layer of complexity altogether. Let's go through that now. So with X-linked conditions, you should remember from last week that 
female will have an XX chromosome and a male will have an XY chromosome. And usually you get given X-linked conditions. And so we put the X down to represent the correct nomenclature. And then again, we put the superscript or the little squared sign, but we use a letter. So X capital T and X lowercase t we can use for our examples today. Now, because the females have two X's and the males have an XY, the way in which things are inherited makes it a little bit more confusing. So let's take a quick look at the male who only has an X, one X, and the other one being a Y. They only need one copy of a condition for it to be expressed. And so if the tall gene is capital T and the short gene is lowercase t, whichever one they get, they're going to express. And so this doesn't look like an autosomal pedigree. This is going to look different. You're going to find a new pattern. Now, describing this using the correct nomenclature is going to make it very confusing. This is really a trial and error process. You have to just practice with as many pedigrees as you can until you see the pattern. Now, because a male has that XY chromosome, it also means that the X is always going to go to his daughters. And that also adds another layer of complexity because whatever he has goes to his daughters and the uh, Y chromosome will always go to the male, you're going to get new combinations from what you would get in an autosomal example. Now with the female, she's going to give one X to the male and one X to the female, and that can be random. So a um, little less confusing with how that operates. But the fact that the male only has one X is really the key to figuring out a sex-linked pedigree or an X-linked pedigree because that's going to define whether or not someone has or doesn't have a certain condition. So make sure you're paying close attention to the way in which the male is passing on that X or receiving it from um, his mother or giving it to his daughters. And so that's really going to help you to understand how a pedigree works with X-linkage. Now, it is certainly possible to have co-dominant, incomplete dominant, and multiple alleles in a pedigree. And there has been a couple multiple choice questions um, that get you to work out that it's a co-dominant or incomplete dominant um, inheritance pattern. And the way that you can usually distinguish the difference between those and the others is that we're looking at more than two individual phenotypes. And so uh, usually we'll have three or more phenotypic changes. So it might be, you know, uh, brown hair, blonde hair, and uh, black hair, uh, for example, or tall, short, and medium. And when we have three phenotypes at work, you know that it's going to fit into the category of codominance or incomplete dominance or multiple alleles. So just to recap all that information, a pedigree is like a family tree. And the idea of a pedigree is that it tracks the inheritance of a condition or a trait. Um, the ways in which they are inherited are usually autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive, X-linked dominant, or X-linked recessive. Each of those can show a different pattern in the pedigree. Now, usually it is your job to figure out the way in which something is inherited. And if a question gives you no information on inheritance, the best way to figure it out is to just use trial and error you have to make some assumptions about the pedigree. And you can start with the idea that anyone that is colored in is homozygous recessive, so has two little t's. Now, the reason that you do that is because it's simple to trace an autosomal recessive condition because it should 
skip generations. It should be observed if you have two individuals that have the condition in all of their offspring. It's just somewhere that I always like to start, but you are welcome to start with any inheritance pattern that you would like to test if you have an idea just by looking at the pedigree what it might be. Now, usually the idea is that somewhere in the pedigree there will be a, um, a way in which there's only one possible answer. So there's almost always a single solution in the pedigree and the annoying part is sometimes you have to map the entire pedigree before you figure that answer out with each of the different types of inheritance. But really that's the best way to be sure uh, a certain way the genes or the conditions are inherited. So that pretty much gets us to the end of pedigrees and again it's hard to describe pedigrees on a podcast because they are so visual. So really go home and practice them. Um, make sure you're um, you know, not being overconfident with them. That's something I find every year with my students is that they feel like just because they've seen a few in a row and they just get the idea that it's always going to be simple. There are always curveballs thrown at you, um, particularly in the HSC. So practice as many as you can until you start seeing the pattern. And I hope that was helpful and didn't confuse you even more. Now we're going to have a look at the next dot point, which says collect, record, and present data to represent frequencies of characteristics in a population in order to identify trends, patterns, relationships, and limitations in data. For example, examining frequency data and analyzing single nucleotide polymorphisms. All right, that is a mouthful of information, but really this dot point's all about looking at population genetics. Specifically, it's looking at how alleles change in a population over time and also how they can be used to trace certain conditions. So again, a very skill-heavy dot point here and you're going to need to see some examples uh, for this to make a bit more sense. So in terms of examining frequency data, you want to be looking at how alleles might change in a population over, over time. And so you might be looking at a particular condition or a particular trait like color, um, let's say in frogs, and how that may change from generation one to two to three all the way up to, you know, ten, um, and how the alleles have changed from generation one to generation ten. And by looking at that data, scientists are able to sort of make predictions about how a population might adapt to their environment, uh, which populations may be more likely to flourish, evolve or even die out and so we look at those frequencies we analyze the data and then we can calculate the percentage of each of the alleles in a population again a very skill heavy question if you have access to the nelson book you'll know what i'm talking about there is a great question on those frogs all right and the second dot point for this one is analyzing single nucleotide polymorphisms or snps now, an SMP is a change to a single nucleotide in the DNA that occurs in at least 1% of the population. Now, it's really important to know that distinction because it's not, by definition, a mutation. Now, a mutation is any change in the DNA. But because it occurs in at least 1% of the population, it's now known as a polymorphism. And with these polymorphisms, they're quite often found in non-coding regions of DNA, which means they get passed on from generation to generation. Now, these SMPs are very useful. 
scientists will often use these as um, you know indicators of disease susceptibility. Um, they can also be used to establish family lineage or determine relatedness of individuals. Um, f- for example, like evolutionary relationships as well. Um, so they're just another useful tool when studying genomics to figure out certain things that may give us more information and allow us to, you know, be healthier as a, as a population. So SMP, a single nucleotide polymorphism, is a change in a single base. Example, something that is usually an A in, in 99% of the population is a T in your um in your genes, uh, this means that you have a polymorphism. And again, it's got to be in at least 1% of the population to be considered that SNP. If it's less than 1%, it's not. So a very uh, clear distinction there. Uh, they're usually found in non-coding regions of DNA. That way they can be passed on. If they're found in coding regions in D- of DNA, you will often see you know, similar phenotypic expressions. Um, So these are things that are observable. Um, And once again, they can be used as genetic markers to identify individuals or identify the likelihood of getting certain diseases. Um, And they are not by definition really a mutation. All right, guys, I hope that was helpful today. And I hope you're looking forward to next week's episode on DNA sequencing and profiling with Laura McKnight. Um, Once again, thank you for listening this far. Um, I really appreciate all the support and make sure you check out the HSC Biology uh, Facebook page. Um, And yeah, thanks again.